Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. She wasn't Norma. Norma was dead. She had been dead for 10 years, and it didn't matter because she was going to scream, and he swung the hammer to stop the scream, to kill the scream, and as he swung the hammer, the spill of flowers fell out of his hand. The spill spilled and broke open, spilling red, white, and yellow tea roses beside the dented trash cans where cats made alien love in the dark, screaming in love, screaming, screaming. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie, your host for this episode, and I'm here with my final review from Stephen King's Night Shift Collection. The short story I'm reviewing today is The Man Who Loved Flowers, originally published in Gallery Magazine in 1977 before being collected in Night Shift in 1978. Of the stories reprinted in Night Shift, this is the most recent, printed in Gallery Magazine just six months before the compilation was released. It's also one of the shortest and most straightforward tales. As such, as it's hard to review a seven-page story and not talk about the last third, I'm going to issue a spoiler warning. So if you don't want to be spoiled, hit pause now. Take the five minutes that you need to read the story, then come back. In The Man Who Loves Flowers, we follow an unnamed man as he walks down the New York City streets. The man has an air about him that infects everyone who sees him, from old ladies to shopkeepers. Well-dressed in a gray suit, the man looks like he's desperately in love, and on this gorgeous spring day, just the presence of this man brings joy. He stops to buy flowers for the woman he's headed to meet, a woman named Norma. But, very quickly, because it's a short, short story, comes the twist. Norma's been dead for ten years, and this man is clearly insane. He sees a woman and, delusional, believes it to be Norma. When he discovers she isn't Norma, he bashes her skull in with a hammer, as he's done to five women before. Who is Norma? We never find out. Did this man kill Norma? I'm not sure, though it certainly seems possible. No, this isn't a tale about character or even about plot. It's a story that sets a mood, creates an atmosphere, and then jars you from it with King pulling out yet another O. Henry-style twist ending, as he has in so many other Night Shift writings. King does a good job setting the stage. His descriptions of the man are vague, but we see him reflected in the thoughts of those he passes. His absolute joy at being in love creates a mood of all those around him, and any unsuspecting reader would think this is a romance tale. Certainly, published in the pages of Gallery, which is a skin magazine if you're unfamiliar with the title, this would seem innocuous to anyone unfamiliar with the author credited for the story. But I'm all too familiar with King's work, especially his short stories, this being the 20th I've reviewed from Night Shift. King didn't fool me. While this could have been an emotional human drama, like The Last Rung on the Ladder or The Woman in the Room, maybe this man was taking flowers to a gravestone, or maybe he was going on an actual date. But the tone and the writing of the story reminded me a little too much of the short story Strawberry Spring, another night shift tale about an insane killer. I'll give the author credit, though. He hints at this one. Unlike some of the other endings in Night Shift that felt unjustified, Reading this story and looking for any clues of nefarious intent, I notice that the man walks past a radio, and it's not playing the Chiffon's 1963 hit, He's So Fine, or that same year's Angels song, My Boyfriend's Back, or any other upbeat, poppy song of the day. 
It's playing news radio discussing the escalation of the Vietnam conflict or crime lord let off on the city's failing war on heroin and, most auspiciously to me, the body of an unidentified woman being pulled from the river. It's a single paragraph of ugly news nestled in a few pages of springtime joy. But it's a tell. I know at this moment that our main character is on his way to murder, not to date. King also uses the setting to change the mood. The happiest moments come at the beginning, which takes place in the late afternoon, people going home from work. By the time the man has gotten to his destination, it's twilight, and the lovely city sights are replaced by darkness and the sounds of mating stray cats. Darkness is coming, both literally and metaphorically. But I think there's one other layer to this story. Not only is King using symbolism in this tale, I think the entire story is an allegorical one of love itself. This came to me near the very end, after the murder. King writes, quote, It was full dark now. The stickball players had gone in. If there were bloodstains on his suit, they wouldn't show. Not in the dark. Not in the soft, late spring dark. And her name had not been Norma. But he knew what his name was. It was, was, love. His name was Love. And he walked these dark streets because Norma was waiting for him. And he would find her. Someday soon. End quote. At first, I disregarded those two paragraphs, but they stuck with me after I put down the book. I was reminded, strangely, of an old episode of Amazing Stories called Guilt Trip, in which Dom DeLuise plays guilt, the actual emotion personified. Just thinking about that had me wonder, what if this man was love, personified, walking the streets of New York? What would that mean that he made others so happy and then killed? Even if he isn't a supernatural being, what if the man truly believes himself to be love? What is King saying with that? Then I looked again at the arc of the story. I reread it. It's very short. And it starts so happy and bright. New love brings bliss. I mean, truthfully, there's no feeling in the world like the exhilaration of new romance. And this man, love, his very presence changes the attitude of all those he passes. That's how strong his feeling is. Even a flower vendor who doesn't take care of himself and has pretzel crumbs on his shirt can't help but be moved by this feeling of new love. But then it starts to change. The story darkens and deepens while love exits the streets and starts walking the alleys. The settings change too. In the beginning, old women were reminded of their own youthful dalliances and smiling at our main character. But now, our love walks past little kids teasing each other. The rhyme, quote, First comes love, then comes marriage, here comes Henry with a baby carriage, end quote. Next he follows pregnant women smoking and men who can't tear their eyes away from the baseball game on TV. Now he is walking the streets, the TV's in a shop window, so you keep the setting outside, but we've seen love already transform. Love has gone from bringing joy to being contemplative. King's insertion of that old teasing rhyme tells us literally what he's showing us. First came love. Now, he walks through marriage, with pregnancy and men who don't pay attention to the women they used to cherish. When love nears his destination, his only companionship are two cats mating in an alley. And as King writes, quote, there was nothing pretty about that, end quote. I take that as King showing that once the bliss of romance is gone, what's left are two people flailing at each other like two alley cats getting it on. Then, the final touch. Love brings fear, pain, and death. This man, love, kills the woman. He bashes her skull in. Oh yeah, 
Last week, I said the last rung on the ladder was King's short story version of the song Cats in the Cradle. Here, I think King is doing his version of Nazareth's Love Hurts. For indeed, on these New York streets, our main character, Love, wounds and mars the woman he went to see. My reading of this story is that it's unabashedly cynical, and one of King's darkest, most pessimistic tales yet. If you agree with my reading, this is up there with his works as Bachman in its ugly depiction of human nature and emotion. Yet, for where King was during this stage of his life and his career, still dealing with the death of his mother and still writing books that would be published under the Bachman pseudonym, it does seem kind of fitting. Initially, I speculated if this was a story King wrote early on in his life. The 1963 setting seems arbitrary, and I suspected King may have written this in the 60s, and like several short stories in Night Shift, given it a polish and published it. I can't find any information on if that is or isn't the case, but the imagery and the language used makes me think that if this has any ties to King's college and even high school writings, they've been rewritten completely. The focus here on language seems like one of the more sophisticated in Night Shift. Yet, like so many of these Night Shift stories, this feels like an aping of Edgar Allan Poe. King uses language tricks to convey emotion and excitement, such as endless run-on sentences like the one I read at the opening of this podcast. And in another Poe touch, one we've seen time and again in Night Shift, the story is told by an unreliable narrator. Even though The Man Who Loves Flowers was written in the third-person omniscient perspective, King fools us, as always. And once more, we have a twist ending, when a true twist ending in a Night Shift story would be a tale that didn't twist at the end. But as short as it is, the story leaves little aftertaste, good or bad, once it's over. Yet I do find myself growing more and more fond of it the more I chew over King's allegory and taking the whole murderous tale as King's view of romance. And with that, I end my reviews of the short stories in Night Shift that I began almost a year ago with my review of the Salem's Lot sequel, One for the Road. I kept tabs on my own thoughts of these short stories, though. Of the 20, I thought 11 were really good. The Woman in the Room was my favorite story, though it is vastly different of most of the other tales. Of the straight horror, I think Children of the Corn is the best, though with so many terrible movies. I was indifferent on six of the Night Shift stories, and only three did I think were a waste of time and ink, those being Graveyard Shift, The Mangler, and worst of all, Jerusalem's Lot. But honestly, that's a good batting average for a collection. Over half are good, and over four-fifths are worth a look. By that metric, purely mathematical, Night Shift's a very good book. Yet, I find my view of Night Shift to be more emotional than calculated. I mentioned how The Man Who Loved Flowers reuses so many tricks King employed in the other stories here, and that's the biggest drawback of Night Shift. There's just not a lot of variety between the stories. Too many of these tales use the same tricks. It's another twist ending, another Cthulhu monster, another unreliable narrator, another story told from the first-person perspective, which... I view as a trick, something you pull out once in a while versus a tool that you use to write almost half the stories. Now these shorts may have vacillated between human terrors and supernatural ones, but the tone, the pacing, the twist endings, I've now read them and reviewed them time and again. The only two stories that feel really different are the dramas, The Last Rung on the Ladder and The Woman in the Room, and both of these I consider highlights of Night Shift, and while I'm sure some of that is the true emotion that King's writing evokes, I also wonder if my appreciation's been magnified by being so happy to see a story that's a change of pace. Night Shift is a case where the whole is actually less than the sum of its parts, which doesn't make it a bad book, 
but just not as impressive as the individual stories contained within. That said, as a Stephen King fan who feels he's transitioning from just being a fan and becoming almost a King scholar, I think this was an invaluable read. Taking each sword story and looking at when it was written, when it was first published, and watching King's style grow and change over the span of a decade is incredibly thought-provoking. It's so easy to look at King and see the statistics of the books he sold and put him up on a pedestal and to think of him as just a born talent. These stories show King's talent wasn't born, it was made through a decade of hard work and perseverance. I'd put this book as a must-read for any aspiring writer, and to read it not in the order printed, but look up the original publication dates and read the stories in those orders. Pay attention to the differences and analyze the writing style. As a scholastic activity, this has helped me to notice the difference between good writing and merely acceptable storytelling. But for King fans, or even more generically, fans of horror fiction, this is a diverting read, and if you skip those three stories I listed above, especially Jerusalem's Lot, you'll find yourself entertained. But in the end, King wasn't interested in Night Shift. This book was a stalling tactic and a contractual obligation. King's relationship with Doubleday, the publisher of his first five books, was souring. Doubleday wanted a book from King, and King had a five-book contract, and Doubleday didn't really want a short story collection. Historically, they didn't sell well. They wanted the next King hardcover novel. But King had taken on a huge project, and he needed more time before that book, The Stand, would be ready. As such, Night Shift was thrown together. It's mostly stories King had already sold and published once, and the others likely weren't written specifically for this volume, but written and then first published in this volume. But Night Shift gave King the time he needed to finish The Stand, and Doubleday got a King book to sell. And King fans? Well, they got some of his most well-known short stories. Arguably, these stories are famous due to the numerous movie and television adaptations instead of the stories themselves, yet eight of these short stories have been adapted into well over 20 major motion pictures, plus some TV episodes, ensuring King's stories remain in the public consciousness. And, as this week's Books and Nachos podcast means I finished reviewing all 20 stories in Night Shift, over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, Jacob Stewart and I have also finished reviewing all 21 movies, plus three short films, based on these stories. This week is a milestone. We watched and reviewed all nine Children of the Corn films and lived to tell about it. So please head over to NowPlayingPodcast.com and you can hear our reviews of all the movie adaptations of King's Night Shift works, as well as reviews of all the adaptations of Carrie, Salem's Lot, and The Shining. But now, constant listener, after a year of reviewing Night Shift alone, it's time to return to King's other works, and I know many of you like to read along with me, so here's the upcoming schedule. Now, I know many of you think that the next review is going to be of The Stand. It's Stephen King's book published the same year as the Night Shift Collection. And that book review is coming very soon. But first, there's one work I feel I have to do as a little bit of pre-work to The Stand. It's called The Dark Man, and it's a poem written by Stephen King while he was in college, and the first time King wrote about a character named Randall Flagg who anyone who's familiar with The Stand will recognize that name. That poem didn't see publication until 2013, but I'm the kind of guy who likes to do my homework, and so I'm going to be reviewing that poem in early November. Then in late November comes my review of The Stand itself. I imagine it's going to be a pretty long review, but it's a book that's worth it. 
I haven't spent this past year relaxing and just reviewing a short story every couple weeks. I started reading The Stand for the first time early this year, and I've spent quite a bit of time on research. There's three different versions of the book and so much backstory King has spilled, including a poem he wrote in college. But I'm very, very excited to get to review that book. While over at NowPlayingPodcast.com around the same time, we'll be releasing our review of the 1994 miniseries based on that novel. Then in December comes my review of King's second book that he wrote as Bachman, The Long Walk. And finally, in January, I plan on being back with my review of The Dead Zone. Beyond that, it's a little harder to say, as Now Playing tries to keep pace with Books and Nachos, reviewing the movies there while I review the books here, and Hollywood's shifting release dates make things a bit shaky. But in 2015, I suspect I'll have reviews of at least Firestarter, Bachman's third book, Roadwork, King's nonfiction book, Dance Macabre, Cujo, The Running Man, and... If I want to be a little ambitious and think we're going to get it all in, maybe even reviews of different seasons, Christine, Pet Cemetery, maybe even Cycle of the Rare Wolf. Yes, folks, we're looking at reviewing an average of one King book per month for the next year. So hit up your local bookstore. I do hope you'll read along with me. And I also hope you'll come to booksandnachos.com's forums or drop me an email at show at booksandnachos.com or tweet me. I'm on Twitter as the Arnie C. That's T-H-E-A-R-N-I-E-C. And let me know your thoughts on Night Shift as well as these Books and Nachos reviews. As you can hear, we have no ads. This show's a labor of love, but what I really love is talking to those of you who are listening to this show and getting your feedback and your thoughts on what you read. So I hope to hear from you. And before I return with my review of the Dark Man poem, Stuart, my now-playing co-host, is going to be back with you here in October, reviewing Christopher Priest's 1995 novel, The Prestige. Over at Now Playing, we're about to start reviewing all of Christopher Nolan's films, and Stuart will be reviewing that book here as well. So I'll be back in about a month with my review of The Dark Man, and then soon after The Stand. And in the meantime, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I know at this moment that our main character is on his way to murder, not to date.